Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, January 29. I'm Tom Tilley. I am Jan Fran. Happy Friday to you. It's my favourite day of the week. And today on the show... COVID-19 has changed our lives. For us to live more freely, we need the added protection of COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, that's the $24 million government ad designed to convince you to get the COVID vaccine. People are influenced about whether to vaccinate or not by how, not just how they think about vaccines, but how they intuitively feel about having a needle, having something go into the body that they often see as mysterious. Yeah, we're going to take a look at the ads and ask the question of whether they are likely to get hesitant Aussies over the line. Yeah, will they make any difference whatsoever? First, here are the big stories of the day. So Queensland's Premier is being accused of double standards. Uh, She's asking the federal government to prop up the state's crippled tourism industry. Look, we understand a lot of businesses are back on their feet, but there are some industries that aren't. So what we're asking for is a helping hand during this hour of need. Yeah, that's Anastasia Palaszczuk. The Treasurer of New South Wales isn't impressed. Dominic Perrottet says the Sunshine State kept other states out for months and he's now asking for them to pick up the bill. Yeah, although the Federal Tourism Minister, Dan Tian, he didn't rule out further support when asked on the ABC about the matter. We'll continue to talk to and liaise with the tourism sector uh, as we work towards what approach we will take uh, when JobKeeper ends at the end of March. Yeah, tourism is one of the biggest sectors in Queensland. I think in 2018-19 it brought something along the lines of $13 billion to the state's economy. Um, it's the second largest tourism market in Australia. Not surprised. Queensland has beautiful beaches, got the Great Barrier Reef up there as well. So in one sense, I'm not surprised that they want help opening back that industry. And I also understand why they kept their borders closed. So it's a bit of a tricky situation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like they were keeping the borders closed to keep their state safe, um, which the vast majority of Queenslanders supported. And we've propped up lots of industries that were shut down to keep people safe. Mm. So I don't really see how this is any different. I think consistency is going to be a big one for tourism operators, not just in Queensland but around the country, knowing when borders will close and then what will trigger the reopening of the borders again because otherwise tourists just won't risk it. Yeah, this comes as new figures uh, are out today showing that our economic recovery is on track. Households and small businesses are paying back more than 80% of loans that were deferred at the pandemic's peak in May. And Australia's extended its ban on New Zealand travellers for another 72 hours, so that's at least till Sunday. Yes, officials are urgently tracing a number of people who flew to Australia when they were released from the Auckland Hotel where that mutant strain was found. Here's Acting Chief Health Officer Michael Kidd. Twelve people who are in quarantine at the Pullman Hotel have arrived in Sydney. Three of these people have travelled on to Hong Kong and the authorities there have been advised. Two of these people travelled on to Queensland and the authorities there have also been advised. Wow, that sounds kind of concerning. Yeah, no doubt they would want to get on top of that because, as I mentioned on the show yesterday, we're doing very well with zero community transmission around the country. New Zealand is doing very well. They haven't had community transmission prior to this outbreak in two months. So really getting on top of that, I think, is going to be in everybody's best interest. And with the federal election on the cards as early as this year, Labor leader Anthony Albanese has overhauled his shadow cabinet. The reshuffle is all about putting jobs at the centre of what we will do. So there's been some tension within the Labor Party since uh, Joel Fitzgibbon, he's the member for the Hunter, 
and also a very outspoken advocate for coal, he quit the shadow cabinet last year. Now, back then, he accused the party of losing touch with its blue-collar worker base. The fact is that our climate and energy policies have cost us two recent elections. So yesterday, Anthony Albanese made what's been largely seen as a move to ease climate angst by moving Climate and Energy Minister Mark Butler to health. Uh, He's moved Chris Bowen to climate and says Bowen will put more of an economic focus on that portfolio. Yeah, I think Mark Butler in the climate portfolio was butting heads with Joel Fitzgibbon, um, who has a big constituency in the Hunter where there's a lot of coal operations. So removing Butler removes that tension because I don't think Albanese wants his leadership undermined should we have an election earlier this year. Basically, Mark Butler uh, was too good at his job for t- you know <laughs> talking about climate change and that was concerning the voters in, in coal electorates. It is, it's going to be really interesting, though, to see how Labor talks about climate change if there is an election this year because I think a lot of uh, voters would want them to go hard and go strong on climate. Bill Shorten took that to the last election. But Albanese seems to want to focus a lot more on jobs, so there is a little bit of tension there. And now to this this very wild situation on Wall Street this week. So as I understand it, it's, it's sort of this kind of David and Goliath battle, right? Except instead of David and Goliath, it's Reddit versus hedge funds. Yeah, that's pretty Is much that it. it? Yeah. Um, you know, on the, on the big picture level, basically a group of small-time stock traders who talk to each other on Reddit forums, in particular a thread called Wall Street Bets. They're costing Wall Street hedge funds billions of dollars. So how are they... How? Yeah, well, it it started when they realised a number of big hedge funds had taken a view that the share price of a company called GameStop would go down. And they then speculate on that position via a process called short selling. So the Reddit users saw this was happening and via this thread, Wall Street bets, they encouraged each other to start buying this stock to push up its value instead of letting it go down. Now, even Elon Musk tweeted uh, about this thread. And then over several days, um, people started buying into this stock and its value went up by 1,700%. Right. So back in July, it was only $3. This week, it peaked at $450. And then some of the hedge funds that had shorted it had to close their positions, which means they ended up paying the difference, which was billions of dollars. Right. Just because a few people on Reddit got together and invested in this particular place. Why? Do we know why they wanted to invest in GameStop? Basically, they had a philosophical position that they didn't like these Wall Street hedge funds betting on this price going down. And I think there was a a bit of a gamer loyalty thing going on there as well in that community. And what were they betting through? Like, how do they do it? They're just buying the stock. Lots of them through um, platforms like Robinhood, which are these really cheap trading platforms that have boomed in popularity this year. Um, now, overnight, the GameStop share price started coming down. It was at four fifty. It's now down around two hundred fifty dollars. And Robinhood, that investment app, has actually banned people trading that stock and a few other shares caught up in this movement, citing dangerous market volatility, which has made a lot of people angry. Basically, saying it's it's hypocrisy, and these retail investors should be able to do it. They won't, given what the big traders do. So what what do you think will happen? Well, there was massive volatility on the share market yesterday. Um, You know, the stock market in the US came off badly. The stock market in Australia came off badly. Not sure how much of it was to do with this, but it's unsettling a lot of people. I imagine these traders 
probably don't have enough money to cause this kind of problem on a widespread level. They can right. only pick off a few stocks at a time, but it's certainly unsettling a lot of investors. We don't need to be unsettled any- anymore in 2021, no. do we? All right, in just a moment, we're going to take a look at the vaccination ads and see if they actually do anything. This week, the government's vaccination ads are hitting the airwaves and they're also hitting the internet. Yeah, they're trying to address uh, fears about probably the most important challenge of our time Pretty right important. Now. It's up there, that's for sure. Yeah, taking the COVID vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, but I just want to know what the long-term implications could be. I definitely have some hesitations because of the pace that this drug has been manufactured. The unknown, the scary, not knowing enough of side effects. Yes, that was what some of the people in our office had to say about getting the jab. Look, it's a small non-scientific survey there. Yeah, but those views actually bear similarities to a study by the Australian National University in November last year. Um, It found that 40% of Australians are either uncertain about the vaccine, unlikely to get it, or definitely not getting it. Yeah, which means that only 59% of the 3,000 Australians surveyed said that they definitely would get the COVID vaccine once it became available. This is well under the 95% uptake that the Prime Minister's hoping for. Yeah, so on this briefing topic, will the government's vaccine ads actually work? Australia is working hard to ensure we all have access to safe, effective and free COVID-19 vaccines. The TV, radio, outdoor and digital ad campaign, which you may have already seen, uh, they were released this week. It's costing the government $24 million. So let's have a bit of a listen to them. Here's part of the 30-second TV ad. The COVID-19 vaccines are being assessed carefully by independent clinical experts to ensure all potential vaccines meet Australia's high safety and quality standards. After vaccines are approved, they'll be rolled out, going to those most in need of protection first. So as you can hear there, it's a government-sounding voice that you're hearing with a series of bright, clean Aqua blue graphics. Yep, good description there, Tom. Yeah. There's also an ad with some key experts, you know, reading scripts on camera, experts like Professor John Skerritt from the Therapeutic Goods Administration or the TGA. There's also the well-known infectious disease expert Nick Coatesworth. COVID-19 has changed our lives. For us to live more freely, we need the added protection of COVID-19 vaccines. And then there are some longer ads, around two minutes each, to get to the more specific issues, including the TGA's approval process and how the vaccines were developed so quickly. Research into how to respond to a pandemic has been ongoing long before COVID-19, giving researchers a head start to build the COVID-19 vaccines. So... That's just a glimpse of what you can expect to see from these ads. And we showed some of them to our colleagues that you heard from earlier. Here are some of their reactions. No, it doesn't do anything for me. I'd say I'm neutral from seeing that. My feelings don't really change. My main hesitation still rests with the fact that this is all so new. It does change my mind a little bit or gives me a little bit more security because I do think Australia has high standards. Yeah, some mixed reactions there. Let's see what a public health expert says about the ads. Professor Julie Leask is from Sydney University. Julie, what are the key reasons people are hesitant? Generally, people worry about what's in the vaccine if they're going to be worried about it. They worry about the ingredients, the recipe, what that might do to the body. People are naturally concerned about side effects and particularly serious side effects and getting those. And with this particular vaccine, as with most new vaccines, people will be 
a little bit cautious about whether they should be having it. They may want to see others having it safely first before they do because they're worried about, particularly with the COVID vaccine, the rapidity of the development. There is a concern out there among some that there's been shortcuts on safety because of that rapidity. That's not the case. They have tested these vaccines for safety in the same way they do with any vaccine. Yeah, I mean, the the fears around it being rushed sound fairly rational given the situation we're in and the high stakes. But I imagine some of the other fears are, are harder to pinpoint, maybe quite deeply layered in our subconscious biases. Uh, how much can an information campaign like this address those range of issues from the rational to the irrational? People are influenced about whether to vaccinate or not by how not just how they think about vaccines, but how they intuitively feel about having a needle, having something go into the body that they often see as mysterious. And so that's why trust comes into it um, so crucially, because even though many people won't have the time nor inclination to look through reading all the randomised trials, nor the ability to necessarily interpret them, they will look to people who might have done that and say, can I trust this person? If I feel that this person is authentic, they are acting in good faith, you know, I feel like I can have this vaccine because I trust them. What do you make of the ads released this week by the government? Do they do a good job of addressing the deeper reasons behind some of the hesitations people might have? Particularly having Professor John Skerish from the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, gives you a sort of insight into the people behind the mysterious government sort of infrastructure that we usually have. And he is leading a group who will be carefully assessing these vaccines for their safety. And I think having that personalisation of the safety and quality standard assessment is good. Whoever you are, there's no one really relatable in those ads. They're very clinical and authoritative. The only people speaking are those experts you mentioned and then the sort of voice of God voiceover. Do you feel like that goes anyway to addressing those deeper, more psychological, emotional fears people have? What I like to see in a campaign is that they've gone to their audiences first and found out what the audiences want to know, diverse audiences. Then they've developed the messages, the first draft of them, if you like, then pre-tested them with those audiences. And so, for example, there's an image of an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander woman in one of the animations. And I'd want to know that that image carries with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I don't know the answer to that because the government haven't given us a lot of detail on what has informed this campaign and how they've developed the messages. Yeah, I guess one of my reactions to it would be whether or not it targets that group of people that do tend to be vaccine hesitant. From your experience, who are they and do you think these ads do a good job of speaking to them in particular? Really, I think these campaigns would be wanting to inform all Australians, but also those who are very hesitant. And I don't think, as I've said, the facts alone are not enough in assuring people about vaccination when they're hesitant. That was Professor Julie Leesk. Let's get a reaction from an advertising perspective now. Dan Gregory worked in advertising for two decades. He's also appeared on Gruen on the ABC. 
Dan, do you think these ads are doing the job? Look, I think there's two questions in that. Firstly, I think, will the ad be effective? And the second part of that is, does it really matter? And for the first part, I'm not sure the, the ads are entirely effective. One of the problems with communication is you're, you're talking to multiple groups and trying to convince people who are at different stages. I think for most Australians, I mean, if you're like me, my business has been disrupted for 12 months. I mean, quite frankly, I take the vaccine in a rusty needle taken from a junkie's arm at this point. <laughs> but I think it's how do we convince the outliers? How do we convince the conservatives who think that, you know, law and order is for everyone but them? And also how do we convince, you know, the, the alternative, you know, rebels on the left who think everything is a conspiracy theory? So I think it's, it's actually the outliers who need to be convinced. And I don't think this particularly does a good job of getting them over the line. You know, this is, this is more, you know, reassurance for people who are sort of, you know, already thinking, you know, I'm going to have to get this vaccine because I want life to get back to normal. Yeah, there's no emotional connection. There's no one really relatable in the ads. It's all the, the voiceover and there's there's one ad with some experts. Do you think it fails to connect on that human level? What they're doing, I think, well, is that they're they're really anchoring it in safety. So the first thing we need to do is, you know, our survival brain basically makes all of our default decisions. So it looks for safety, it looks for self-interest, and it looks for simplicity. And they're anchoring the, the safety issue, but in some ways they're, they're actually making the argument more complex. I don't need to get a degree in epidemiology to understand that this is a good idea. I need to connect with mm. the idea of my life getting back to normal emotionally. Mm. You talked about targeting the right emotions, and I can't help but think of the so-called Grim Reaper ads of the 1980s that were used to fight the AIDS epidemic. Let's just have a wee bit of a listen. But in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. But if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner or always use condoms. Always... That ad, clearly very emotive. If you haven't seen it, it's somebody dressed as the Grim Reaper in this really smoky, spooky environment and he rolls a bowling ball and, you know, knocks over all of these people and the voiceover is really intense and there's a lot of emotions there. I mean, how does an ad like this compare with an ad like that? Well, speaking as someone who was a 16-year-old boy when the Grim Reaper ad came out and it made it almost impossible to get laid... um, (laughs) You know, I think that was an effective ad. I don't think that's necessarily the approach for for this campaign, however. One of the issues with, with the AIDS campaign was it was initially, at the time it was perceived as a, a gay man's disease and everyone else thought they were safe. So I think part of what the Grim Reaper campaign did was it communicated to everyone the idea that you're not just sleeping with the person you're sleeping with, you're sleeping with every person that person has slept with as well. That was the messaging that was appropriate for the time. COVID-19 has almost been like a bully in, in its behaviour in that it's just it's kept beating people down and we've kind of been beaten somewhat into submission. I'd be looking to leverage off social conformity. And what we know is, you know, if you have a look at some of the experiments that Solomon Ash did, we know that human beings 
will, even those of us who think of ourselves as, you know, completely individual and very original, we're driven by social conformity. In other words, we want to stand out, but we want to stand out for the reasons we want, not to stand out for the wrong reasons. Yeah, well, it just highlights how many different ways they could have gone about this. And the idea of social conformity is an interesting one. I, I remember that road safety ad where guys were doing burnouts and people would put up their little finger to, to insinuate they had a small penis, which was sort you know of that's, going down the same track. That's such a great example. I was riding my motorcycle on, on Victoria Road and I pulled up behind five outlaw motorcycles with a you know, three-piece patch on the back. And the lights went green and one of the young bikers took off up over the Gladesville Bridge at speed and one of the older outlaw bikers just turned to his mate and gave him the little finger symbol. Oh, wow. And I just thought, you know, <laughs> if outlaw bikers are using that to, to, you know, denote that speeding is a small dick thing to do, then that's a really effective um, campaign. That was Dan Gregory, who runs a consultancy called The Behaviour Report. The question for me is... In comparison to all of the other public health campaigns, you know, smoking, driving, the AIDS epidemic, the major difference here is the internet and just the hectic amount of misinformation about COVID that exists on the internet. So I wonder how that's playing into the government's mind and the ad exec's mind when they get a brief like this. Yeah, it certainly makes it very challenging. I guess one of the upsides of this new internet context we're living in now is that you can target ads more specifically, you know, via the digital platform. So hopefully there's different groups of people that have very different attitudes yeah, to different the vaccine. Needs, yep. You can target your, your messaging more specifically. Well, that is it from Tom and I for today. Starting tomorrow, though, we are going to bring you a special weekend episode of The Briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Yeah, so her first guest, and she'll do a big interview every Saturday. Um, tomorrow it's Thomas Mayer. He's this really interesting Indigenous guy from the Northern Territory who's taking the Uluru Statement, calling for a better deal for our First Nations people around the country, advocating for the government to move forward with what this statement was calling for. So if you're interested in the change to date or Black Lives Matter or any issues to do with race and the reckoning with our First Peoples, this should be a fascinating interview tomorrow on the weekend episode of The Briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Podcast One Production.